Training female lifters, neuromuscular efficiency. In a previous article, I stated the reason why women's deadlifts don't always obey this rule has to do with the same reason women can perform a much higher percentage of their one rep max for reps. But that's a subject for another article. This was in reference to ideal deadlifting mechanics and uh, specifically refers to the fact that women can pull a deadlift with worse technique than men can at the 1RM level of effort. Well, this is the other article. If I need to tell you that women are physiologically different than men, you either have not coached both men and women, or you have not been paying any attention while you were. A one rep max effort performed by a female trainee is a different event than a, lip, a limit rep performed by a male lifter. Here are several observations and then some more observations and then a couple of speculations and then we'll talk turkey. First, women can perform a much higher percentage of their one rep max for a set of five than men can. Most women can do five reps on the bench press with five to seven, within five to seven pounds of their one rep max. A woman with a 100 pound bench can normally do 95 pounds for five reps. 95% or perhaps even as much as 96 or 97% of their one rep max for five. In contrast, men generally work with sets of five at about 85 to 87% of their one rep max. A 350 male bencher can usually triple 315 and do maybe uh, 300 for five. This is not because women possess the fictional quality known as strength endurance, and it's not that she's very efficient with the use of her strength. It is because a one rep max for a female is not the same type of limit lift that it is for a male lifter. So when she does a five rep max close to her one rep max, it's really the one rep max's fault. Here's a funny story. A long time ago, I took a female trainee to a powerlifting meet. Rose Ellen was just getting started, and I have always been a believer in the power of competitive pressure to improve a person's training. Her opening deadlift was an easy 220, looked like a set of five weight, and I, having apparently not paid close attention to her training lifts, decided that 237 would be an excellent second attempt. It was welded to the floor. Didn't move at all. A guy would have at least broken it loose, but she couldn't even put a crack of daylight between the plates and the platform, despite pulling on it for several seconds. And this was entirely my fault. My observation at the time that she could have done a set of five with 220 was entirely compatible with the actual and unrealized by me fact that her one rep max, that day anyway, was probably 231, maybe. So a good second and third attempt would have been 225 and a half and 231. So 220 wasn't heavy, but 237 was in excess of her limit. There was a spread of about 5% between what could have been pulled for five reps and her limit single. This phenomenon 
and the observation that there isn't much room between a woman's opener and her third attempt was probably one reason that Olympic weightlifting went to the one kilo rule for increases between attempts after the women's division was added to the Olympics. Second observation, even after concentric failure, women can continue to exert eccentric control over a load. Second funny story, I decided to experiment with my dawning awareness of this phenomenon on a gal from the gym doing the inclined bench press. <clears throat> now, I haven't used the incline in decades, but at the time it suited my purposes uh, because the construction of this particular bench made it very easy to spot the exercise. Kay was very strong, and she'd been training several months. I warmed her up, then loaded 65 pounds on the bar and started the set. <clears throat> she finished six reps by herself and failed on the way up on number seven. I helped her up with the seventh rep, told her to lower the bar under control. She did 13 more reps under eccentric control for a total of 20 after concentric failure had occurred at seven. And in fact, she could have done more than that. I just got bored with it. Later that week, she reported minimal soreness and was ready to train again. Now, in a similar situation, a guy would get two more reps and then be able to isometrically hold one more, maybe. But 13 controlled negatives after failure does not happen with a male trainee because a set of five or six reps to failure produces sufficient fatigue to shut down further muscular effort in male, but not apparently for K. Even after they reach failure during a set, women retain the ability to continue generating force eccentrically long after a male would have fatigued to the point of eccentric failure. Third observation, as previously mentioned, women can perform a 1RM personal record absolute strength dependent squat, press, deadlift, or bench press with less than perfect technique, which post-novice male lifters can't usually do. No personal Funny story, this time just look it up for yourself. YouTube is full of videos of female lifters performing record or PR squats, benches, deadlifts, with sloppier form than males can use for limited attempts. Although it may take a trained eye and frame-by-frame -frame video to detect the problems. Heavy squats and pulls must move in a vertical line over the midfoot for efficiency of balance and leverage mechanics yet their lifts are completed and are in fact PRs and record performances and are impressive displays of strength despite the fact that they could be better technically. And the fact that men would miss attempts with a similar level of technical irregularity. Women can lift heavier weights with a lower dependence on technical perfection than men who must increase mechanical efficiency as the weight goes up. Women should, but men have to. More observations. The standing vertical jump is a standard test for explosive power. It measures the difference between the height of the maximally upraised hand while standing flat-footed on the floor 
and the height of the hand at the top of a jump initiated with a single counter-movement drop and no foot movement. The average woman's standing vertical jump, abbreviated SVJ in the literature, is 14 inches. It's very hard to find a record. There is a 29 and a half inch jump listed at Nebraska Track and Field in 2002. In contrast, the men's average is 22 inches, with a 46 inch jump at a 2006 NFL Combine being the best controlled record I could find. So both the average and the record women's standing vertical jump is about 64% of the men's. Now, this refers to the standard controlled performance of the standing vertical jump, not the internet version. Contrast this with the fact that women's individual timed sports performances average about 90% of the performances of men across all timed sports. Second observation, men and women's Men's and women's divisions, you've heard of these, exist in all athletics events in which both sexes participate. Gender, in uh, this article, is a linguistics term. Our discussion here refers to a person's physical sex. If golf is segregated by sex, you know that profound differences in physical performance exist between the sexes. Golf right? Some sports, badminton, tennis, squash, table tennis, curling, corf ball, figure skating, and a few others feature mixed competition where teams consist of both men and women. The equestrian sports feature both riders and horses of both sexes, including geldings, all three sexes, in the same event. But no legitimate competitive sport pits human females against human males directly. And third, men's and women's combat sports are particularly segregated due to the high injury potential a mismatch can present. Men and women train and spar together in many dojos, but there are no serious competitive venues for mixed matches that count towards the record, towards any record. Yes, at the professional level, the best woman may possibly be able to beat the worst man in her weight class. But that's not how fights are arranged in actual sports, and of course that's obviously not the point. So here are a couple of speculations depending upon these previous observations. Speculation number one. Women tend to be more flexible than men. Range of motion around a joint is associated with the ability to relax into a stretch, a skill that must be learned by inflexible people. I assure you that there are significantly more inflexible men than women. Could it be that this phenomenon is associated with the issue of men's versus women's strength and power production? Speculation number two. Most people who train women report that their female trainees have significantly less delayed onset muscle soreness, or DOMS, D-O-M-S, than their male trainees. DOMS is associated 
with unadapted to eccentric loading. Their soreness lasts for a shorter time and it interferes less with their training than it does with the males. This could be attributed to either a lower volitional training intensity or to inherent differences in the quality of the eccentric loading women experience under the bar. Kay's ability to work eccentrically far beyond concentric failure indicates both a lack of fatigue from the preceding concentric work and a lack of fatigue during the eccentric work itself. It's quite likely that she was unable to work hard enough against the bar to approach a more typical for a male response pattern. So how do you explain these observations? It's uh, rather obvious that testosterone is somehow involved, but what does it do that explains this particular aspect of human sexual dimorphism, the term that is applied to the morphological differences between animals of two different sexes within the same species. Testosterone has profound effects on neuromuscular deficiency, and neuromuscular efficiency is the primary physical difference between men and women. It accounts for the differences in strength, evident even at similar lean body masses, and all the factors cited previously. A 1RM max, one repetition max PR lift, is theoretically a maximum motor unit recruitment event. An indication of your motor nervous system's ability to recruit a maximum number of the muscle's contractile components and therefore the maximum amount of muscle mass into a muscular effort. A 1RM is essentially a combination of your neurological and muscular ability, a display of your maximum force production capacity through the recruitment of very high numbers of these motor units, the basic component of the muscle's contractile machinery. A motor unit is, is defined as one motor nerve and all of the muscle fibers it controls. Most authorities reckon that a true 100% of motor unit recruitment event is impossible, and I've seen the numbers 95 to 98% kicked around as the most likely cap on neuromuscular efficiency. This efficiency decreases with age, unfortunately, but it also varies with genetic endowment and sex. Neuromuscular efficiency explains the spread between average and elite athletic performances, between the performances of younger and older athletes, and between male and female athletic performances. Athletic performance in most sports is greatly dependent on power. The ability to explode is the ability to display strength quickly. To recruit huge numbers of motor units into contraction in a very short period of time. And it's another way to describe neuromuscular efficiency. If men can recruit 98% of their motor units into a one rep max contraction, then women 
are only able to recruit some lower percentage into the same relative effort. Perhaps 90%, maybe even 85%, maybe less than that. Quite literally, a 1RM for a male and a female are two different neuromuscular events. Now, strength and power are intimately related. Strength is the ability to produce force against an external resistance, and power is the ability to display that force quickly, explosively. The math is this. Power equals force times distance with that sum divided by time. Force is strength, your ability to apply force to the floor, an implement, a barbell, or an opponent. The distance a load move is moved is typically controlled by the circumstances of the display, a clean or a snatch, a football lineman's action across the line of scrimmage. And time is the period during which the explosion must occur the time it takes to produce the contraction that we want to measure. Resist the temptation now to express power as force times velocity, because it's easy to misunderstand the true situation if you do this. Yes, time, uh, distance and time over time. Distance divided by time is in fact velocity, of course. But in trying to understand muscular power production, we are only secondarily concerned with the velocity of the load being moved. Our primary concern in this discussion our primary concern is the time it takes to produce the force that moves the load, the explosion of muscular force itself and not the result of the explosion itself. Strength and the ability to display it quickly are also intimately related in that genetically gifted explosive athletes are also stronger than more average athletes when they start training. If a kid comes into the gym, with a 36-inch vertical, he always squats quite a bit more, maybe twice as much, as a kid with a 16-inch vertical on his first day of training. Now here's the bad news. Human athletic capacity is pretty much limited by genetic and congenital endowment. The genetically controlled aspects are anthropometry, which influences leverage efficiency in the mechanical expression of force production. For example, long tibias and short femurs are associated with sprinting efficiency. Height and skeletal size are often determine the sports in which many athletes may excel, like basketball, football, and jockeying, obvious examples of sports that select for a particular anthropometry. Explosion and neuromuscular efficiency are associated with nervous system, uh, nervous tissue quality. The link between brain and muscle is long and complicated and can display varying amounts of functional capacity. The quality of the nerve-muscle interface and the contractile characteristics of the sarcomere proteins themselves. The ratio of type 1 to type 2 muscle fibers is fixed and along with neurological tissue limitations. And uh, if you want to understand that, think about how difficult it is to heal a damaged nerve. This represents a significant bottleneck. I'm very sorry, but it's just not possible to make a silk purse out of a genetic 
Sal's ear. In addition, all of these variable characteristics are subject to hormonal mediation, the result of the congenital sexual expression of the genotype as male or female. Every system that influences human physical development is dependent on the hormonal environment in which it develops and in which it functions. Males and females and old and young people have different hormonal environments, both de developmentally and functionally. A male, having bathed in testosterone since his prenatal days, shows its effects in every system of his body, from neuromuscular to behavioral to tonsorial, just as a woman shows, it, shows its absence in hers. This means that women who take androgens and anabolic steroids can make up some of the differences, but nowhere near all of them. It also means that Caitlyn Jenner should not get to enter the master's division, women's heptathlon. And there is huge variation within the abilities of these systems to respond to their particular hormonal environment, to the extent that much of the cause of this huge amount of variation remains unknown. What is known is that every aspect of physical development is focused through the lens of the hormonal milieu into an individual expression that varies with sex, all other genetically determined characteristics, and the physical environment in which development takes place. To save time, we'll abbreviate this complex concept as just genetics. You've heard that term and you're comfortable with it. Genetics encompasses all those factors. Now, the standing vertical jump. This test is a very good measurement of this genetic explosiveness endowment because it measures your ability to accelerate your own body's mass, to impart sufficient momentum to carry you up in the air a measurable, measured distance after you stop applying force to the ground. Since the force production that generates this acceleration must occur in the short time it takes to produce a counter-movement jump, the height of the jump is a very precise measurement of your ability to recruit motor units right now into the contraction, and this is your ability to explode. Strength improvement helps, but not much, because the weight you're moving is only your body weight, which is pretty light relative to a strong athlete's squat. You don't have an opportunity in a vertical jump to use all of that strength. If you gain muscle mass, force production has increased to compensate for the increased body weight. But absolute force production isn't the limiter in the standing vertical jump. Instantaneous recruitment of the submaximal contraction is. For this reason, the standing vertical jump is a test of genetics, a pretty good way to assess the genotype of the prospective lift athlete. It responds quite minimally to practice because it's not very technical and there's no way really to game the test if the test administrator is paying attention to you. 
A kid who first tests his vertical with a 90, and at the time has a 95-pound squat, and who later tests it after accumulating the strength sufficient to produce a 365-pound squat, will in fact show a little improvement, maybe 15%, maybe 20%, because the quantity being tested is not absolute force production, but the ability to recruit, which doesn't get trained in the squat. For this same reason, some very strong powerlifters do not have big verticals. The relatively limited ability for neuromuscular efficiency improvement is borne out by the evidence of standing vertical jump testing over time. Barring a large body fat loss, the vertical jump improvement is limited to perhaps 20% under the most optimum of circumstances for males, and usually only 10 to 15%. Most women show very little improvement maybe 5% and maybe none at all because of their inherently less efficient neuromuscular capacity. Strength coaches with no countervailing agenda all agree. You just can't improve the standing vertical jump very much, and to the small extent it can be improved, a strength increase is the primary factor, and this is because of genetics. And why would you want to anyway? The test is designed to reveal your natural explosive capacity, not your ability to game the test or train for it. It demonstrates the difference between the 12s and the 36s, not the ability of a 26 to get to 30. There will be screaming. I know, but listen, show us your data. The rate of force development. RFD is very popular right now. RFD training has sometimes completely replaced actual strength training in many athletes' programs. Once again, YouTube is jam-packed with videos about how to avoid getting your squat and your deadlift strong. Seminars are available that will certify your ability to teach agility drills, cone drills, plyometrics, balance tricks, single leg dumbbell exercises, and explosive movements with weights too light to make you stronger. In lieu, of course, of coaching the heavy lifts. But RFD training, rate of force development training, is largely a waste of time, a mere display of what the athlete can already do, and not a way to make him better at it. Even if you increase the RFD around a single joint, the knee, for example, this improvement does not result in significant improvement in explosion within the whole system. A standing vertical jump does not significantly increase with RFD training because the only variable in the power equation that is truly trainable is force, F, force production, strength. Athletes at the professional and D1 college level are explosive, quick, agile, balanced, and coordinated, or they wouldn't be playing at the professional and the D1 level anyway. They are elite athletes, hired for their genetics. 
Explosion and power is a genetic component, and this is why God made college sports recruiters. And the NFL Combine, of course, which tests for both genetics that can't be trained and strength, which most assuredly can and should be trained. Since many, if not most, of these gifted athletes have actually never been effectively trained for strength because their coaches have not been have, have been caught up in this latest trendy RFD strength avoidance protocol, their potential remains undeveloped. Sex obviously determines most of the hormonal milieu in that sex is an obvious aspect of genetics. But variations between individuals in sex hormone receptor efficiency are also a major determinant of hormone response to young men with the same height and body weight, perhaps even the same testosterone level, will have different physical capacities. In general, a younger man will display more neuromuscular efficiency than an older man. In general, a male will show more neuromuscular efficiency than a female. The difference between natural athletes, you know, the explosive guys with a 36-inch vertical that learn Visually, they can watch things uh, being executed on the field and do them. The difference between these guys and their less gifted brethren is quite profound. An explosive athlete who, by definition, recruits more motor units and therefore more muscle mass into a contraction receives a different training stimulus from that contraction than an athlete who recruits less muscle mass into the contraction. This explains why less talented athletes cannot benefit from the same training programs that produce world-class performances for athletes with better genetics. The Bulgarian Olympic weightlifting team, for example, may well be able to snatch, clean a jerk, and front squat, and that's all. For them, that may be enough training because they're working more muscle mass at a higher capacity with every snatch, clean and jerk, and front squat as a result of being able to recruit more motor units into each contraction because of who they are and what they are. In contrast, your narrow ass probably needs to squat, deadlift, and press heavy if you want to have a chance to lift in the same meet with these guys. There will be examples of gifted older athletes who are better than less gifted younger athletes, as well as gifted females who are better than average males, especially older average males, like me. Male and female differences, however, remain the most profound predictor of absolute physical capacity for the same reason that the average male cannot be trained to a level of neuromuscular efficiency of the gifted male, the average female cannot be trained to perform beyond the average male's trained capacity. Cannot. Another obvious implication is just lying there, waiting to piss everybody off. Might as well get it over with. The role of women in infantry combat positions in the military is controversial, but it shouldn't be.
If there is a way to quantitatively evaluate the role of strength and power in the physical demands of combat and the preparation of soldiers for combat readiness, then the differences between male and female physical potential cannot be ignored. As unpopular as this may be politically, the fact remains that the reality of human sexual dimorphism must be dealt with. So how do we deal with it? By taking into account what we know about the differences in male and female neuromuscular efficiency, by understanding the implications for training, and by planning appropriately. A 1RM for a female is a different neuromuscular event than it is for a male, perhaps only an 85 to 90 percent recruitment effort, perhaps less, perhaps more, depending on individual differences. If this is the case, and decades of training experience and much empirical evidence indicate that it is, then a 5RM is also a different neuromuscular event, a different stress, and therefore a different straining stimulus. It is lighter relative to a male's 5RM to the extent that three sets of five do not constitute the same training stress for males and females. So after the first couple of months of training, heavy sets of five for a female may not be heavy enough, really heavy enough to drive the stress recovery adaptation cycle the same way that it does for male trainees. Therefore, the productive training stress a male can apply with sets of five may have to be produced with relatively heavier weights heavy threes, for example. Volume can be maintained with more sets, and five sets of three reps for women have been successfully used to drive strength adaptations longer than fives have. And by this reasoning, sets of 10 are as pointless for women as 20s are for males who are trying to get stronger. Any weight a male trainee can do for 20 reps is not heavy, even though it may feel like shit at the end of the set. If force production is strength, a weight that requires such sub-maximal force production that it can be done 20 times is not heavy enough to drive a strength adaptation for any significant length of time. For women, tens are the equivalent waste of time. If strength is the training objective, and after the initial weeks of training, fives aren't that much better because they just aren't heavy enough for her. Sets of three, or perhaps even twos, doubles, are required to get close enough to a weight that is actually heavy enough to drive a strength adaptation. And in fact, experience has shown that five sets of three for women works as well and for as long as three sets of five does for men where men will plateau on threes after just a few weeks, women can train productively with this relatively heavier, but really about the same heavy for them, program for months. Women can also train heavier more frequently than men. Because they get less sore, they recover faster, and they can deal with more frequent exposures to a training stress. Since the stress is lower relative to a male's capacity to beat himself up. Heavy threes 
for four to five sets three days a week with no light days may be necessary to drive a strength increase in more advanced females. Such a schedule would kill most men, and it is necessary for most women. Women can also train the deadlift more frequently than men and need to do so to drive it up. Most men cannot recover from frequent heavy deadlifting, and most men cannot tolerate multiple sets across in a workout. Women, on the other hand, need the heavy volume as well as the high intensity of multiple heavy triples. And this is some of the highest quality strength stress they can apply. Women also need less rest between sets than men. Heavy squats for five sets across for an intermediate male might take 15 minutes between sets to execute, adding up to a very long workout when the other lifts are added in. Women can recover faster between sets of work that for them is not as taxing as it is for men. This is necessary to keep in mind, especially considering the need for more heavy workouts in the week's schedule and the ability to do the work in a more manageable time frame. And women's lifting technique. While it can withstand more slop than men's technique, will tolerate at limit weights, still obviously needs to be as close to perfection as possible. Just because a lift can be completed with an inefficient bar path doesn't mean you, the coach, are off the hook. If you can't produce close to perfect technique in your lifters, men or women, you aren't a competent barbell coach. Even though you may be able to hide behind your naturally talented female lifters, like many D1 strength and conditioning coaches hide behind their recruiters. But really what we do know for sure is that women respond to the stress of training in a different way because they produce a different quality of stress from which to recover and thus from which to adapt. The adaptation curve is different, but it still trends upward like that for all humans exposed to an adaptive stress. We're still learning, so keep these things in mind and we'll all learn together. Tom DeStazio, starting strength coach and assistant strength and conditioning coach at Sacramento State University, contributed quite a few ideas to this article. I am grateful for his experience, his judgment, and his time.